Welcome to the Founder to Mentor podcast. My name is Mike Fada. I'm an entrepreneur with multiple nine-figure exits and a passion for health and mentorship. Join me on a journey where I connect with world-class founder mentors to inspire your personal and professional growth. Let's jump into it. I'm excited to have this conversation with Sean Kelly, uh, founder and now executive chair of Carew and uh, general partner of the Family Fund. Welcome to Founder to Mentor, Sean. Fired up to be here. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it, man. Can you uh, give us give us your background? Start us out with uh, with your an intro on yourself and uh, and on on the businesses that you're involved in. Okay, let's see. I uh, I'll try to do this the right way and quickly. I grew up grew up in Northern Michigan, uh, born and raised. Uh, started out as a thing I focused on the most was actually freestyle snowboarding. This is a two time national medalist in in snowboarding. That's where I realized I I like the thrill. Probably part of the reason. I've gone into entrepreneurship. And then besides snowboarding, I came from a family that loved health and fitness. My dad was a, a doctor, a dentist. Most of my aunts and uncles were. So I decided to become a biomedical engineer. And I was like, where do I, where do I go to college? And I was like, let's go to Johns Hopkins. I hear that's a place that doctors go. So studied biomedical engineering at Johns Hopkins. It was at that time um, that I actually became a personal trainer. Uh, and also a uh, a model, believe it or not, something I very rarely admit. But that combination of of doing things, I ended up hanging out with a lot of people who worked out a lot. And then I had clients that I trained. I recognized that maybe I didn't want to be a doctor because prevention really, like I, I thought, was the most important. Like maybe I don't want to focus on the problem after it's already occurred, but actually help prevent it. So it was a journey throughout college of like still continuing with pre med. But you know, focusing on this preventative fitness, you know, aspect, and so at the end of uh, at the end of college, I decided to not uh, not go to med school, but instead start my own business. I actually haven't been employed since uh, since college, probably because I'm uh, a bit unemployable. Uh, but also, I just love you know creating creating projects and trying to solve problems in unique ways. Since college, I've started, built, co-founded actually seven total companies three eight-figure companies, three seven-figure companies, three companies that still exist, and one company that basically we put a hundred grand into and never even launched because it just <laughs> wasn't wasn't the right idea at the right time. And today, like you said, I'm I'm um, have the pleasure of being chairman and CSO of Carew. Uh, formerly the, the foundation of that company was in a company called Snack Nation, general partner at the family fund. Uh, we are a fund of uh, of all founders, so created by, operated by, and funded by all of our LPs or founders and operators. Really looking to in, invest in founder-led companies where you know the 60, 70 of us together can be really helpful to supporting that uh, that company and their journey and growth. And then I'm also a uh, managing partner at a B2B media and marketing company called Lead Roller, something that we haven't really spoken a lot about in, in public, but we'll be talking a a little more about pretty pretty soon. Cool. I always love talking to serial entrepreneurs because um, I think that uh, a lot of founders can gain perspective when you're when you've had this opportunity, which not many people do, to uh, to create and and found multiple businesses and create success in multiple businesses. So I'm excited for the conversation. Can you walk us through? Uh, you know, maybe people knew kind of Snack Nation before. Maybe some of our listeners. Uh, didn't know, but Snack Nation and, and transitioning into Carew. Can you walk us through that uh, that path? Yeah, and actually, when I say the 
the foundation. The foundation for Snack Nation actually came in a company called Human, which stood for helping unite mankind in nutrition. So this is my my first eight-figure business that I co-founded with my current partner still to this day, Andy Mackinson. And the idea was when I was back in college, I, I started just to get obsessed with why people ate so poorly. Like, why do we have this obesity problem? A lot of people like have their different people. And I'd love to hear yours, Mike, like why we got into CPG. The reason I got into CPG was actually because of health and wellness. I saw how important packaged foods are to the health of our country. And so when I was in college, I started studying like the concentric circle theory. I was thinking about becoming a Fulbright scholar. I was visiting the hospital as a personal trainer, all those things. And I just realized like, oh my gosh, if people are having like Cheetos and Coca-Cola and Pepsi and crap all day long, what are the chances that they're having a healthy dinner, a healthy lunch, a healthy breakfast? Like not at all. And I especially saw that in the most impoverished areas, the people who needed the most help and who had the highest percentage of obesity, uh, these kids literally were having like no breakfast and then flaming hot Cheetos and Pepsi for lunch. So I was like, this is crazy. Uh, in, in that world, I was like, vending machines are really important. How do we basically make access to healthy foods easier? I was like, it's vending machines. It's healthy vending machines that educate with digital screens that we place in schools and hospitals and health clubs and gyms and offices. And fantastic. So we launched this company, Helping Unite Mankind in Nutrition, healthyvending.com. We ended up having over 3,000 vending machines and micro markets. Micro markets are like unattended self-checkout, um, little mini markets inside offices and public. Most people have seen them by now. And then we did that through a franchise model. So we had almost 200 franchisees running all of these machines and routes across the country. That that business was <laughs> learned a lot. If you wanna um, if you wanna get gray hair fast, go into franchising. Uh, so that was a business that was you know making seven figures in profit. And then we're like we were told like you got to raise VC money. You guys are doing awesome. You're making seven figures in profit. You're kicking butt. You're in your late 20s. Go and raise a bunch of money and become a franchise. Because the current model was like, we couldn't actually take a, a percentage of sales from our from all of our distributors. So like, okay, yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to help everybody else do this. We're going to convert them into franchisees. We can get gross sales. We're going to be more connected to everybody's success. It'll work better. Well, franchising just provides a lot of a, a lot of unique challenges and a lot of kind of rules and regulations. And so we grew that business and in growing that business and, and learning how to do it, we learned that the majority of the locations that wanted our machines and our markets were too small, right? So a bunch of people listen today, I'm guessing they might have an office. Well, when, when, when offices were a thing, they might have had an office of 10 people, 20 people, 30 people. Well, guess what? You're not going to install $10,000 worth of equipment to serve 20 people. So if you look at America, like 90% of locations, they don't justify the cap X of these like markets and machines. And so we said, okay, well, let's just, let's just throw everything in a box, like rotate it, give people awesome stuff and just tell them that they can buy it. We'll create like a subscription service for offices that match their needs. That was Snack Nation. Well, human grew pretty fast, right? So that was like my first uh, eight figure business. Snack Nation grew even faster, right? We went from... 400 grand to 4 million to 12 million to 18 million. Like that, that was, that was our initial, that was our initial growth runway. And in this process, we're like, geez, this is easier. It's more predictable. It's lower CapEx. It's higher margin. Let's actually sell all of our franchises. Like, like let's sell the rights to the franchise to all of our franchisees, give them everything they need, all the relationships, and then let's focus exclusively on Snack Nation. So that's what we did. We, we focused on Snack Nation. Business grew uh, really nicely. 
uh, charging, charging along, um, rock and rolling, and, and this thing called COVID hits in 2020, <laughs> where where, uh, where people are like, oh, you you uh, you you shipped our office, but we're not going into the office anymore. And you know, I remember being like, oh yeah, this is like a one three month thing. We better we better figure something out to do, right? Because this is gonna you know this is gonna last for a few months. We can't lose all of our revenue. And so that's when we said, okay, let's just let's let's create a platform. Basically, it ended up being initial. It initially was a logistics platform where companies could ship anything physical, whatever they wanted to their teams at like the click of a button. Now, click of a button was a little bit of an overpromise initially, like we're there now, but it, you know, initially there was a lot more stuff being pulled behind the scenes to make that happen. But that was the first iteration of Carew. We then recognized, you know, in that process, okay, wow. Yeah, this logistics platform makes sense, but what's the reason, right? The thing you and I talked about before, Mike, is nobody buys a drill, they buy a hole in the wall. Why were people buying stuff for their teams, right? Regardless of what that stuff is, because now we have an entire marketplace with you know thousands of vendors in it, and you can really ship kind of whatever you want to them. We realized it was because of connection, it was because of culture, it was employee recognition, it was so managers could recognize people for their employ for their anniversaries, for their birthdays, for doing a good job, for connecting with the team, for doing all this different stuff, especially in this remote world. So really, the reason for it was connectivity, culture, recognition. We're like, we need to create an HR tech platform. So Carew moved from this marketplace of being able to send everything, gifts and recognition to people to now being an HR tech solution that lets people, encourages them with you know digital cards where everybody in the employee, all the employees can sign at once, uh, send them anything from any gift card under the sun to any physical product, allows managers to understand what is Mike like? When does he like it? What are the dates that are most important? How does he like to be recognized? We even have recognition and connection DNA and languages. So every company can understand what the recognition and connection languages of their employees are so that they know how to recognize. Do you like to be recognized in public? Do you not like to be? Do you like a card? Do you like a gift? Would you rather have an experience? And so now this is all built into this one place where we think it can be a very, very powerful tool for this new, uh, for this new remote world. So that's, that's the journey. That's the journey of Karu. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm enamored with product uh, with founder product fit and, uh, and, and talk about it, you know, cause a lot of people think about product market fit, but I think it's more critical for success on why did the founder start this business in the first place? And, 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 and is there a natural fit to, to the product, which, uh, it's, it screams through with you, um, you know, starting in the, uh, being an athlete and then having the, uh, having health and fitness as a, as a background and then, and then wanting to change the way people eat or snack or, or just enjoy themselves. And now that's even going a step further of, of like connectivity and community, which I'm, which I'm sure is a natural progression into the fun, but talk, talk, talk to us about kind of what, what got you into, uh, into being an investor and interested in that and, and, uh, and, 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 and that as a part of the, uh, uh, you know, the work that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I completely, I will second exactly what you said. One of the first criteria that we look for with the family fund is, is founder problem fit. If, if that is not dialed in, I don't care how good the business idea is. I think it's, I think it's in trouble if that is not something that is really, really, really well aligned. So I'm glad you called that out. I don't think it gets talked about enough. Um, regarding family funds. So one of the things with Snack Nation and with Human, like Human, if you look at Human, we were one of the first customers of Lara Bar. Remember Lara Bar? Of course you do, but like, like, and we can go to, I mean, so many, uh, Lara bar, bare naked, all these brands that are kind of like OG natural food, like, like natural food hall of fame. Right. Um, uh, we were some of the first customers and we were placing them not only in all of our vending machines, but also I launched an e-commerce business online, like before 
Thrive Market before a lot of these others. And so what we ended up doing is we we learn about these emerging brands and we try to promote them and put them in people's hands, whether it was through FitFuel, the e-commerce store, Human that all the vending machines, Snack Nation through delivery. Our goal was to give a platform to these emerging brands to become understood and known by the world. Because emerging brands, right? The, I mean, if you're an emerging brand that works within natural foods, you're probably significantly healthier and have better ingredients in the product that you're replacing. So it fit directly in with our mission. Well, by doing that, what we learned is we became friends with so many of the founders of the emerging brands. We were helping them out. We were getting integrated. It wasn't just about putting your stuff on our box and machines. It was about learning about you. Well, in doing so, we learned like, what were the brands that were doing well? What are the products that people liked the most in our boxes? This was oftentimes before they had widespread uh, retail uh, uh, appeal and approval. And so we'd learn pretty quickly like what worked and what didn't. This led me into angel investing because like, oh my gosh, these guys are raising money. I love this brand. I love this company. I'll write a check. Uh, ended up uh, teaming up with uh, my good friend and now general partner, Josh Wands, one of the best humans in the world to invest together, you know, because he was seeing the same things from like the recruiting side. And so we'd invest together. Then Josh and I started throwing summits and bringing kind of building community. We threw the the Brand Builder Show and, and podcast. Uh, we threw Brand Builder events. We loved, you know, throwing parties and bringing founders and different people together, um, you know, to for the for the benefit of of the group. And in doing so, the group would be like, "Well, you guys are, you guys are writing these like, you know, fifty thousand dollar checks into these brands. Why don't you, we? Why don't we all come in together? Bring us all in. We'll write like half a million dollar, million dollar checks, and we'll invest together. And so that this first idea came when we were throwing a um, a, a summit out in the Hamptons and. Josh and I, you know, started going, like, you know what? That actually sounds like a lot of fun and really cool to build, build a fund with all founders in an amazing community to invest in our favorite companies and brands that are doing well in the world and solving meaningful problems. Let's do it. And so we, uh, we went about, um, geez, talked about it a lot in 2020, really got after it in 2021, where we brought the idea um, in Q1 of 21 to one of our dear friends, Kurt Seidensticker, the founder of Vital Proteins. And we brought this idea to Kurt on a trip that we were all down in Puerto Escondido walking on the beach in Mexico. And we said, Kurt, you know, would you, would you like to be a part of this? Like, what do you think? I mean, I think Kurt was like, I think Kurt was the second person besides Josh and I that we talked about. And Kurt said, you know what, guys, not only do I think it's an awesome idea, this has also been one of my dreams. And you know what, I, I, I want to do this with you. And so it was kind of like, then we're like, all right, you know what, the three of us, we're going to go and make this happen. And that was the beginning of it. And, you know, here we, here we are today. Geez, we have a, a right about 70, could be right over, it could be a little bit over 70, could be a little bit under uh, founder, operator, LPs. Again, so it's, it's so all of us are founders um, and uh, we're a, you know, we're a small fund to 26, 27 million, um, in that, but only co-investment. So we're typically writing checks between a half a million to $2 million. Our average check side is like one to one to one and a half million into founder led teams. We've made uh, geez, a, a, uh, We've made about 15 investments so far, but only 10 core investments. Core investments are a half million or more. And of those 10 core investments, we'll probably make about 10 more. Cool. What was the, uh, what was the first company that you guys uh, invested into? The first company we invested in was actually a little bit outside of thesis. And it, it, was, it was not outside of thesis in terms of product or founder. It was a little bit outside in how early stage it was. Uh, but the the interesting thing is we will we typically invest in like Series A or a little bit later, like once we see product market fit and there's like repeatable sustainable unit economics. Um, it's it's just more of our co investment strategy. But we will invest early on 
um, and potentially pre-revenue when we know the founder have known them for a long time. If you actually look at our, all of our investments, most of them we've known the founder and or the existing co-investors for 10 plus years. Basically speaking to the whole thing of like, people don't invest in, in, in dots, they invest in lines. And so this is particularly, we invested in Meredith Perry's company, Elamind, which is launching at the back half of this year. It's a, a neurotechnology company with Meredith and a team of MIT neuroscientists. Um, I, I think you're wearing an aura, right? Did I see that correctly? Yeah. Are you wearing one? Okay. Yeah. So you're wearing an aura. Okay. You got one. Um, aura, whoop, right? We all, so many of us, you know, wear these. I, I only wear my aura at night. But that's a, this is a part of the quantitative self movement with Aura and Whoop where they give you data, right, that you can take and then you can determine what do I want to do with this data to improve my health, to improve my performance. Elamind is a, initially, it is a headband that you wear to experience better sleep. So it's, in my belief, it's the next wave of wearables that are not just giving you biofeedback, but they're actually altering uh, your bioresponse to deliver a direct benefit. So Meredith, somebody, she created U-Beam before, which was um, like wireless electricity. One of my favorite entrepreneurs, a phenomenal founder. She's got just the right amount of chip on her shoulder uh, and combined with passion and intelligence. And I'm thrilled for the world to see this product come out because I think it's uh, I think it's gonna be really impactful. Nice. Yeah, I'm a big believer in the wearables. And I, I hear you, like making it, uh, getting data is one thing it's uh but having an impact uh if it can have a more of a direct impact especially when getting enough sleep sounds like a uh sounds like a good product i'll take i'm one of those guys that take all the i don't know whether people call it biohacking or whatever improving what? continuous improvement of uh, what makes you a better person what makes you a better human what makes you a better yeah. entrepreneur uh, I, I try it all like a guinea pig for well i'm, I'm, I'm putting you on the list brother oh, I'm putting you on the list awesome sweet um is the fund then focused on, is it a category or, 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 or kind of specific, or does it get, is it get really to the, uh, to the founder? How's the deal flow in relation to the other funds that you're partnering with? And yeah, well, I mean, you want to talk specifically about deal flow, a good, a good yeah, place to start. Because I'm sure there's, there's founders here that are saying, Hey, like that all sounds great. Can I, and my business is at the right stage and, and, yeah. uh, and family fund sounds like a great partner. Like how, how does that work? Uh, or, or maybe they're in frozen or they're, you know, or they're, they're in, in some product that you're, you guys aren't interested in, but yeah, talk, talk to us a little bit about what the, uh, what the right thesis or the right fit is for the, for, for the fund. Yeah. So, so for the most part, especially if we have not gotten to know you yet and we just don't know you for a while, um, our, our primary focus is on Series A. So the Series A round, most of the companies that we're investing in have 10 million plus in revenue. So that's a, a good way to think about it. Um, we're usually investing alongside a prominent lead investor. So a lead investor that, again, we know really well. The reason why is that de-risks our capital because we know the firm well, we know how much diligence they've done, and we can talk to them about all of the specifics. The reason being, it's not that we don't like to do that, but as full-time operators and founders ourselves, as a co-investor, we're not leading deals and setting terms. We're typically writing a million to $2 million checks in rounds that are anywhere between five and 20 million. Um, and so that like, you know, who we invest alongside ends up being really important. And that may, you know, that could very well change, change over time. Uh, and sometimes we're actually you know, we meet companies often that have not put together a round. We're doing this for two companies right now. 
where they don't have a lead investor. Um, uh, they have not put together the round. They're just kicking things off. And we'll help them think through and we'll say, hey, you know what? We're going to commit a million bucks, but we're going to go and find and work with you to find the right lead investor. And so we'll make all the intro. So it doesn't mean that a lead has to come first, but it means that a lead typically has to be a part of that round. And who are we, you know, what else are we looking for? You mentioned founder problem fit, uh, ultra important to us that the founder cares deeply about this problem and is willing to go through the hell that sometimes uh, accompanies the entrepreneurial journey to get to the other side. You got to have that resilience. And I think if you don't have passion for the problem, I think you, you desperately need to find somebody, somebody who does. Other things that we look for is we look for sustainable unit economics. We, what, what I basically mean by that is profitability. You can project out without massive leaps of faith, this company being profitable. Now, obviously, in this landscape, we're investing in more profitable companies than we than we maybe otherwise would have, right? If this was if we were investing a few years ago, they don't have to be profitable. Many of the companies that we're investing in are not, but it need we need to see like, okay, this actually makes sense, and it doesn't have to be like, oh, we're you're you know we could if we three x our gross margin, we can get there. It's like okay, you know what? How how realistic is that actually you know to happening? And sometimes you know sometimes that kind of stuff is if you're building out your own manufacturing, your own capabilities. You just invested in a company that's you know, created an entirely new capability and, you know, built their own manufacturing, their own warehouse. That's going to like, uh, I'm sorry, manufacturing facility. That's going to like two and a half X gross profit. But otherwise it's really challenging. We got to like, you know, working, working with a founder. That does not mean, I, I think we get that. I think people get this wrong a lot. Like, oh my gosh, I, you know, founders need to be the most coachable in the world. And I know this is going to be a little bit, uh, you know, some people will kind of be up in arms. I don't think the founder necessarily needs to be the most coachable because I think some of the best founders are the most convicted and they just believe and see things that other people don't. And without their crazy, some of the amazing shit in the world would not get built. So what I, what I say is that's great. If you're coachable, we like that. We like that. But more importantly, we want somebody to be a good listener. Listen to all the viewpoints, listen to your board. If you, if you have a board, I mean, I think a lot of times companies don't need boards. But like, listen to the people around you. And if you still take that in and you don't think it's the right approach and you don't want to take that advice, it's totally up to you as a founder whether or not you want to take it or not. And so I think coachability and listening are a little bit different. We just want somebody who can listen. Other things we're looking for there, um, geez, we, uh, the category is ultra important to us. I think one of the most important things, especially in the landscape today, first of all, I'm, I'm blown away like more investors are not how difficult it is for companies to raise money right now because I think it's a wonderful time to invest. I mean, if you look at valuations, first of all, companies really need capital. Two, valuations have come way down. Three, you can get better terms. Four, you can actually help the founder more. But what happens? I'm sorry, like most investors in the world, they're momentum investors. They want to invest just because other people are. And then when they stop investing, they don't invest. I'm not saying everybody, but I think it's a wonderful time to invest. So I'm just, it's just wild how um, how, how some you know yeah, firms are not, not putting money definitely. Yeah, the landscape's definitely changed. I mean, interesting for 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 your fund, just because um, you know a year ago or a year and a half ago, the market was so frothy. It was a founders' market, and the valuations and and multiple investors usually chasing a good deal, and and um, and now that's changed. And I think it's just the start of the change as we go into maybe economic winter or how long, however long that goes. But uh, it's funny where there some founders that don't know um, in the oh. journey are still thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to raise at, at three times or four times, five times sales, or, you know, th that's what, that's what's in the news of other, of companies selling. And there's just, yeah. there's a lot of, there's a lot of founders that are, that are, uh, 
that are just don't know they, they're legitimately confused about it and also at like what scale you have to be at I, like it, it was music to my ears when you said series a at 10 million dollars in sales like that's what i'm used to and i kind of uh also talk to founders about that like that is a significant proven product market fit at scale and you're ready for growth capital and all that comes with kind of institutional capital before that you know it should be like friends and family and angel investors and, and, and other forms of capital, um, to kind of prove that out. But also in the very frothy market that dipped down and you had, you had founders raising, they were at 5 million in sales or 2 million in sales. And, and that still happens if, especially if they've had a track record, like someone raising a series A and, 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 you know, they have a million dollars in sales or half a million dollars mm -hmm. in sales or something. It has adjusted. It definitely has adjusted. And I think, I, I think for the cycles happen for reasons. They're not, it's not always the most fun, but they happen for reasons. And I think at the end of the day, this is, it's good to reset things a little bit. I know it's not fun when you're going through it. I know it's not fun to raise money right now. I mean, we're seeing a lot of, seeing a lot of great companies that are struggling to raise right now. I mean, like really, really good companies that have like good growth, like good unit economics, like I'm sure they got real path profitability, great founder and, and who are just struggling. So I think it's, I know it's not fun for the founders going through this. But get to the other side, survive. You will make it happen. Be resilient. Do not be too sensitive, right? Do not, you know, founders right now are like, I'm worried about raising this money and this particular, um, you know, our, our valuation. And if we if we do a bridge, we open up, you know, our last round and we do a bridge. I'm wondering what that's going to signal to the market in the future. I'm like, don't worry about signals right now. Like, like literally get through this, build a good company and you'll be okay because nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to care if you raise it a flat round right now. Again, I know founders would prefer to not to have that dilution, but nobody's going to be mad at you two years from now because you raised a flat round in 23. No, I think the the uh, the game for founders is stay in business and uh, and and, and uh, uh, give yourself as much runway as possible. I love that. You know, every, every, so many people talk about first mover advantage, last mover advantage. Like first mover advantage is so overrated. It's overrated in almost every category in every industry ever. It's like, focus on being the last mover here. You'll, you'll do better, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I know we, when we, you know, Mantabarvis, we founded the, uh, a lot of the hemp industry, but then we had hundreds, literally hundreds of, of competitors that said, yeah, you guys are the pioneer. Thanks for starting this out and we'll take it from here. And, and we had to, we had just had to compete, compete, compete to like stay relevant and, and, uh, and, you know, become the last company standing. It's, uh, it's, it's way better. It's all, it's about the, if you're, if you're not focused on the uh, journey forever, then you got to focus on the end part of the journey, you know, not the, uh, we, we just had our family fun spring summit out in long Island in the Hamptons a couple weeks ago. And yeah, one Josh of the, invited me there. I wish I would have, I would have loved to come. I, I was conflicted, but maybe next time. Hey, we got our, we got our, um, this one will be good. We'll, we have one in October coming up, which would be great to have you. So we gotta, we gotta make sure we talk about that one. Um, but at this summit, you know, one of the things Janica, uh, Janica Lane and Josh Wand were having our, our final session and Janica basically said, we summarized it in a statement that was build your company as if you'll have it forever or else you will, <laughs> you know? So it's like, you know, build and I, and I, and I see like, you know, it's such a good point. No, I, I, I it's such a turnoff for me. Um, and, and when founders say like, Hey, I'm building this to sell it and three years from now I'm selling it. And I, and I get it. There's a, there's a, there's a fine line. There's a balance there of like, what's your exit strategy when you take on 
when you take on investors, they want to know like, hey, that that some point, depending on what stage they're investing in, but five years from now, seven years, 10 years from now, whatever, they, they want to have money back and some profit probably. And so they want to understand your exit strategy. But founders get so, so hyped up on like, hey, I'm building this business to sell it. I've seen those ones fail more times than... Just build good business that 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 you, if if this was your legacy business, even if you've chosen shareholders, thinking about it as a legacy business so that you it, it's institutionalized and it's there forever, that's what companies want to buy. You know that that's what's gonna that's what's gonna give you your sale opportunity. What you just said is so important. The worst angel, the worst angel investment I ever made was a surefire bet of somebody who knew they were could come in, build a company, and sell it in three years. I have since learned for people who have this three to five year plan, it doesn't mean, doesn't mean you can't do it, but if that's like what you're committed to and you're focused on, more often than not, those companies fail and they're more likely to fail significantly below expectations than other businesses. So for us, like we, what we look at is we look at the categories directly and we look at what the strategic landscape is. If this company continues to build over the long term, who is likely to buy it? That's super important to us, right? Because category matters a lot. I mean, that's one thing that founders also don't think about. A found, a, a, I'd rather have a good founder in a great space than a great founder in an average space. And so like business models and categories are not created the same. You, could, you can be a, a, an amazing founder and be in a shitty business model or a shitty category or a shitty industry. And you'll make a little bit or no money. You can be a like a good founder, but in like the right space, right over the next decade, and you'll make a lot more. So it's something that founders, you know, we we don't talk a lot about, but those things end up being important. But yeah, that long term outlook goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning, Mike. Problem founder fit. If you don't, if you're not obsessed with the problem, good, you know, good good luck staying in it as long as you need to. Like you, right? You're what twenty year overnight success. So yeah, 21, 21 years. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. I think that destination planning is is critical, uh, and sometimes you don't have that view. I think by the time you get to, you know, uh, ten million dollars in sales, usually you have that view of like what does the ten to fifty or what does a ten to one hundred million dollars look like. Some founders will struggle with it before they get there, but that destination planning of like what do you want to be when this business really grows up is is critically important for the for the future of it because you know too many founders. Hey, I, I'm going to be a I'm going to be a, a nutrition bar and ice cream company. Those two don't really go well together. And what, like, what are you building? You know, and 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 it may have started for a good reason, but uh, you, you you may want to pivot that into something that's a little bit more. You could be the champion of the space, the category captain, like, and and it aligns for now and 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 has longevity to it too. Yeah. What's well, it's it's, it's it's yeah. I destination planning, and that's a, that's the thing. Like, yes, do it, but just constantly. But the thing is, is destination plan, but don't like put all your eggs in one basket of like, this is going to happen by this time. Like this continuously make long-term decisions. Yeah. Continuously. I've shared the story of like when we, when we, um, we were a $10 million business and we had just launched hemp milk, uh, and we signed, we've, that's when we got venture capital investment, uh, and the, and the institution invested because they saw like what we thought we saw was hemp milk was going to be the future of the company. Non-dairy was going to be the future of the company. And so they made a $3 million investment. We started down the path. A year later, I realized mm, hemp milk's not, it, it's a good product, but it's not, it's not going to be everything for the business. Actually, what was going to be everything for the business, which it turned out to be, was hemp hearts, which we already had, which was right under our nose. And those partners were open enough to say, 
okay, yeah, we see that now, you know, the, it, let, let's, let's shift and, and put all the focus into, uh, into hemp hearts. And, and that, that was the reason for our success. If we would have got fixated or the investor, uh, would have got fixated on like, no, we said, we set out to be this destination. That's why we made the investment. The company would have failed, uh, or I believe it wouldn't have been as successful anywhere near as successful as it is right now. Yeah. The iteration, right? The plans. Yeah. What, what's the, uh, what's the craziest thing that's happened to you in business? The craziest thing that's happened to me in business, man, I don't know. I mean, there's been through all the companies and all this stuff, you know, probably the most wild to me. I mean, there, there's a ton of them. One that I'll, one that I'll call out that was pretty unique is when I was first out of college, I started a e-commerce nutrition company called Fit Fuel. And this company in 2000, geez, when was it? 2007, 2008 timeframe. Anyway, I was living between Las Vegas and Los Angeles, uh, dating my, uh, my then girlfriend, now wife. And uh, we uh, had ended up forming a interesting relationship with Zappos, who was um, Zappos warehouse and offices were right down the street from ours in Vegas. And in these dialogues, uh, Zappos, uh, put together an offer and uh, said they wanted to buy our company. And so I was in, I was in Los Angeles and it was like 11 PM. I was working late in my one bedroom apartment uh, in like uh, in, in Beverly adjacent. And my co-founder calls me. He's like, Sean, you need to come out tomorrow. They're ready. They want to cement the deal. Uh, Alfred, the CFO is going to be here. We're going to meet at this Italian restaurant. You got to be, you got to be here in the morning. So I got in my car at 11 p.m., drove to Las Vegas, you know, got there at like 3 or 4 a.m. Uh, to have this meeting. And when we, when we got there uh, to like finalize the deal and make things happen, and, you know, we were all thrilled. Like, hey, I was, I don't know, at this time I was 24, 25. I was all ecstatic. And it was right in the middle of the financial crisis. And um, one, of the, one of the guys from Zappos went out in the parking lot and took a phone call with Sequoia Capital. Sequoia was their main, their main venture partners and said, we're turning down all acquisitions. You're not doing anything. We're, uh, we're closing up shop and, you know, no, no to any M&A activity. And so they came in, they said the deal's off. You know, after I'd gotten my, I was like, I'm, you know, two hours of sleep went, went from like being so ecstatic and so thrilled, you know, even though a little bit also scared, being like, what's this going to mean? We're going to work for Zappos. Uh, a handful of months later, not, not long after Amazon bought Zappos, I think it was, I think it was within the year. And uh, yeah, so that was, you know, that, that was a crazy one, you know, in terms of just the thrill of like the high to like it not happening at the end. That's a good like uh, example of the roller coaster that we face as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Oh, I faced every emotion within a 24 hour period, like every, everyone. I mean, I, I remember it vividly. Yeah. Other, I mean, crazy things. I mean, I, I don't know. Is there any, any more specific question or maybe, maybe are there other examples of stories that I could riff off of because I could probably speak about it. <laughs> To speak about a lot of things. Yeah, no, I just uh, I always, I always, you know, I always like to share the crazy because you know a lot of entrepreneurs things crazy things happen to us, and when other founders get to hear like, oh, that happened. Oh, okay. Well, some of the stuff that I'm dealing with isn't isn't maybe that crazy, or maybe it is, uh, and it's okay too because uh, you know, creating something out of nothing in business that 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 stuff happens. You know, you got to keep you got to take the uh, you got to take the lows uh, with the highs. It's it's all part of the game. A little bit before that time, the reason there was so much roller coaster and that that was really my first business like post-college that was like a real business is probably 
a year before that, maybe six, nine months before that was one of the pivotal moments in my life. And the reason you'll understand why that particular day had such a big roller coaster. I was driving home at like, you know, eight or 9 p.m. Uh, from our ver- warehouse to our house at the lakes in Las Vegas that I was sharing with my business partner. My, my bed like did not have any sheets on it. I like had not done laundry for like two weeks. I was like, dep- my girlfriend was back in Southern California and I was $120,000 in credit card debt. You gotta remember, this is pre-financial blow up of like 2008. And so this is when like an idiot like me, like basically a kid just out of college could rack up massive credit card debt and they'd give it to you, right? Like good luck trying to do that now. So I had like $120,000 high interest debt, um, you know, putting basically all, all personal guarantee, you know, all the company's inventory, our e-commerce store, not profitable, didn't know what I was doing. I was lonely. I was like probably slightly depressed. I was trying to like, you know, act like I knew what I was doing to my team, to my warehouse team and, you know, everybody else. And I get a call from my buddy from Columbia, who, um, cause I ended up transferring from Johns Hopkins and finished and graduated from Columbia University in New York. Really smart guy. And he called and he said, Oh my gosh, Don, he was ecstatic. He was out drinking and he's like, man, I was going to tell you, you know, I love you, man. I miss you. And I just got a $120,000 bonus today. Uh, from Citigroup, uh, where he sat at the mortgage desk. And I was like, I'm so happy for you, man. <laughs> so I was like, I have 120 grand in credit card debt. I specifically said no to med school. Most of the biomedical engineers went into Wall Street because that's the people that I'm like, I'm not going to Wall Street. I ain't selling my soul. I'm going I'm I'm to do whatever the hell I want. And I just remember that time being like, man, did I make a horrible decision? <laughs> did I just make a terrible decision? Did I ruin my life? And literally within like, um, within six months of that time, got out of all of that credit card debt, figured things out, put our backs against the wall, got scrappy, got resilient. And I still look at that time being like, man, it was a, was a turning point, but that drive home and that day was, 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 was relatively low. And that, you know, that happened, like I said, I think it was like a nine months before the acquisition offer. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the, uh, in, when we're in our twenties, we can do the, uh, try the crazy things, right? That's the, that's the learning phase of, especially if you're an entrepreneur, it's the learning phase of being an entrepreneur, but all of that's worked, uh, worked well for you. You know, now you're in the, uh, now you're in forties. I think in the forties, we're in our earning phase of, of entrepreneurship. So, uh, still learning, but, uh, Hey, it's, uh, hopefully the, uh, the hard work pays off, right? It's funny how you get to where you are and all the different paths. And uh, one of the quotes that I love is, <clears throat> maybe it's not a precise quote, but it's, it's a reflection of many entrepreneurs being like, if you told me how hard it was, I would never start again. But at the same time, I would never do it differently. You know? So it's like looking back, we're happy to have all those moments. You know, We're happy to have the scars, you know, the experience, the learnings. Um, but if we had to do it again, like from this point forward, we'd probably be like, ah, I'm going to do something else. Yeah. I always say that because, you know, being a high school dropout, um, probably if I would have went to school and, and graduated or, or got an MBA or something, there's no way I would have got into the hemp business and, and wanted to pioneer hemp foods. Cause I would, I would have knew the odds, uh, were, there's no way you would have like next to near impossible to actually be successful with it. But, there's, there's no way, right. I mean, you had to be crazy. You had to be a little bit ignorant, probably a little naive. I mean, that's why it's why experience and expertise are oftentimes not the best formula for innovation. Because if you get if you get a whole bunch of people that are experienced and expertise in a particular field in a room together, 
they're just going to do more of the same where you get somebody who's like, doesn't know what the hell they're doing and doesn't know what the, like the parameters and rules have been in the past. They come in just, you know, and shake things up. So. Yeah. Love that. One last one for you. Personal branding as an entrepreneur. Yeah, you're, and I was commenting to you, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're getting back active on LinkedIn. Uh, you, you were there for a while and, and you took a little bit more of a break, but what's personal branding? How do you think about personal branding as a, as a founder or as an entrepreneur? We need to have a better answer for this because, you know, for me, the, the creation of content, right? You talk about like LinkedIn. And for me, I just, I talk about content, whether it's this podcast whether it's writing, whether it's speaking, whether it's posting photography, whether it's filming videos, to me, it's about creation. And it's about the creation to me of art and even in the smallest form. And so what I've recognized is ever since I was a young kid, I loved to write. I loved to speak. I loved to inspire and educate. And I love to tell people about my mistakes and the lessons that I've learned, almost speak to a younger version of myself. I think the reason was that so much of my career has been focused on me. It's felt selfish. It's focused on me and my companies. And, you know, especially when you're young and, you know, maybe especially when you're kind of like a, a type A or like competitive male, like it's all about you. But when you write and when you do things, like to me, it's not about, it's, it's not about personal brand. Yeah, that's sure. That's great. But it's about the creation process. And I think that for people to like espouse what they believe, what they stand for, what they've gone through, what their stories are, what their lessons are, that's, that's like part of being human. And if you're an entrepreneur, you love to create. If you didn't love to create, you wouldn't be so stupid to become an entrepreneur. You'd go and do something else. And so I think that LinkedIn or TikTok is a manifestation of that creation of that art. And I encourage everybody to do it if you have any interest whatsoever. Like for me, I know this is a, you know, weirdness kind of long winded. It's like now it's, now it's important to me because with my new company that again, I'll be talking more about over time, it's a B2B media and marketing company. It's actually a company where our goals are to say no to hustle culture and help entrepreneurs live awesome lives while building awesome businesses. You can have a both. And a lot of the shit that we teach people, I think is wrong. And I think that you can actually have a better life and build a better business by aiming for both. And so now it's really important for me to go and espouse and for me to go and like, and to do this. And it is part of the business, but I look at like the creation and the posting and the writing and everything else. I just think it is a, as like a true expression of like who, of who you are and what you've gone through. Um, you know, and so uh, there's components, right? There's strategy. There's strategy, there's elements, there's things to do. I mean, I'm learning now, like I'm kind of doing some of the stuff that I did. I told you before, like about, I don't know, was it three, two, three years ago? I was like, I'm going to post every day on LinkedIn or like I think every weekday on LinkedIn for one year, more, more than anything, just to like force myself to do it. Um, I'm now going back and kind of doing the same thing and realizing, geez, if I'm, if I'm actually really going to do this and try to do it well and try to impact the most people, I need to have a strategy. I need to learn. I need to get better. I need to have certain tactics. I need to think more than just like throwing something up there, right? And so there are certainly elements, right? Which I think is awesome because like learning new things and trying new things and testing yourself is cool. Yeah, but that's, but that's, that's how I look at it. I, I hope that, I hope almost everybody, like anybody who has any desire whatsoever to create and to put things out there, I would love to be 
one of the millions of people who help them do that. But it's more about the feeling they get than it is how people view you. You know, um, I've always been, I've always been incredible when it comes to personal brand and things. I've always been incredibly selfish in one way. And that is that the thing that I care the most about is how I see myself in the mirror and how good I feel like I did when I lay my head down on the pillow. If, if, if I look at myself and I'm thrilled with, with how I showed up that day, like the other shit doesn't matter. Like it just, it just doesn't. And I know that sounds, it might sound a little bit ridiculous. Like really, Sean, you don't care what other people think about you. Of course. I hope that people think I'm a good guy, you know, but at the end of the day, I've learned like, I can't control what people think about me. Some of my best friends in the world, they started out being like, I hated you from the beginning because you were nice. And because of you, how you look, you look like a Southern California surfer guy. And like, you know, you had some success and I hated you. And these are like some of my best friends now. And I'm like, dude, if this amazing person who I know is a beautiful soul hated me, like, what am I going to do to like get people to like me? You know? So I think, uh, I don't know. I think I'm just just showing up, trying to, trying to have a good time, you know, trying to create, trying to push forward, hopefully in this, you know, this next phase of my career, serving people a little bit more, help, helping more, because it is a lot more fun to focus on other people's problems and help them solve them, you know, than it is to just focus on yours all day long. For sure. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. And if, uh, if people want to connect with you, what's the, uh, what's the best way? Is it LinkedIn or? I think my handle is the Sean Kelly. Yeah. We'll put the, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. So, uh, people want to reach out to them. which i guess putting the in front of your handle makes it seem like you have a massive ego so maybe i do um i, I just haven't I confronted do, I, it I yet do that as well you know because mike fata for some reason wasn't available even though i don't know how many i don't know any other mike fatas but sean kelly seems a, a, a little more you know like there could be others out there more common uh, yeah yeah and uh, but so i put the mike fata but i think about that as well you're like the the mike fata but you know. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't. It, yeah, I should have put the I should have put the real Mike Fata, you know, that, that uh, yeah, sure. the real Mike Fata, exactly. Yeah, and then and then it's kind of also like one of those things, like, well, what people think about you, maybe maybe what people think about you, maybe there's always a little bit of truth to it. So you know, whatever it is, what it is. But um, I'd say either the Sean Kelly or you know, for Family Fund specifically, go to familyfund.vc. You can contact us there. There'll be other stuff we're coming out with in the future, but right now there's the there's the best paths. Best path. That's hard to say. Best paths. Yeah, well, we'll put uh, I'll put both of those links in the uh, show notes. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Sean. I appreciate uh, you sharing, and um, I know that time is our most valuable asset. So, uh, thanks for uh, th- thanks for giving me some of yours. You, uh, I appreciate you, Mike. You're giving founders a platform to do. I think one of the things that they will feel the best about, and that is to try to give and hopefully you know create a little bit of positive influence for other founders and entrepreneurs out there. So, appreciate you having me on. Let's grow. Thank you for listening to the Founder to Mentor podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to check out the links and resources in the show notes. You can help the show, please, by subscribing and leaving a positive review. As always, feel free to get in touch with me on social at Mike Fata. That's it for now. See you next time.